now turn to our passage. Our passage today comes from James chapter 4, 1 to 10. The sermon title is Worship Broken and Restored. Again, the passage is James 4, 1 to 10. And the title of sermon is Worship Broken and Restored. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Good to open up Scripture today. We are wrapping up our Sunday morning teaching series today on spiritual transformation. It's a series where we've been studying what is the nature of us as human beings, what happens when things go wrong inside of us, and what does God do in order to restore us so that we are more like Him. I mentioned last week that I have heard that this has been a helpful series to us. Uh, as a church, and that it's provoked some of us to actually think about our lives in ways that maybe we haven't been before. And so I wanted to offer just a, a time of Q&A, because there is a sense in which just hearing what God says is not the same as entering into the process of having it worked into your life. That process where God's thoughts and His ideas become what shape your own outlook on life, where, where they become guides for how you approach life, that process normally takes place in community with other people. And in that sense, part of who we are as the people of God is a learning community. We are an intentional learning community. We learn from each other how to take what God says and incorporate it into daily life. And this is just a quick plug. This is why we have CGs. This is why they're important. This is why you need to be part of one. But I was also thinking, is there a way that we can do something like that on a Sunday morning um, where it's not just one-on-one -on -one with me. We can always do that any Sunday after the service. You're welcome. Uh, we can talk, ask questions. Uh, you can reach out to me during the week. That's always there, but there's something even more helpful when several of us can gather together. Maybe you hear someone ask something, and you think, oh, I, I wrestle with that same thing. Or you hear somebody say something, and you think, man, I, I, it never occurred to me to think like that. So that's what I would like to try for us uh, today, for anyone who's interested. After the service, let's say 1215, we'll meet together in D22. 
D22 is actually, you have to go up to what we would think of as the third floor uh, in the building next door. And if you have questions about where we've been in the series or places where I've been unclear, places where maybe you want to hear more, what's this look like in your life, let's get together and we can learn together. Okay, that's after the service today. Turning now to James chapter 4. James starts with a great question, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's asking, how come human beings don't get along? Why do we quarrel and fight? What is at the root of our broken relationships? What is wrong with us that we can't get along? And why is this everywhere so much so that you just can't get away from it? If you scroll through your news feed, you're going to discover that a really large percentage of the articles involve some kind of tension between people, some kind of quarreling, some kind of fighting. This nation doesn't like that nation. This one insulted that one. This other one threatened this other one. This one instituted new policies against that one. And you learn nations quarrel and fight. But you also learn that that's true within each nation. This party talks about how stupid this other one is, or it targets people within that party. It investigates them, kicks them off of various committees, or it, in turn, gets kicked off of committees itself. Political parties quarrel and fight. Keep scrolling through the news feed, and you realize that quarrels and fights happen within each party. This one person over here says horrible things about that person over there. This per person over there reciprocates with this other person. When you talk about nations and government, quarreling and fighting is just baked in. It's part of the equation. But it's also baked into society in other ways. So you may read about the economic sector. And if you do that, you read that businesses and regulators spar with each other. Or you read how businesses and customers badmouth bad each other. They leave terrible reviews for each other. Or you read about the conflict between employers and employees who out each other in public. So this employee will talk bad about her awful boss and what she did to pay him back. Or this employer will complain about how entitled her employees are. Both will criticize how out of touch the other one is over issues like compensation or should we be virtual or in office. Or maybe you want to read about school board meetings that take place with teachers and parents who all wrangle over the policies, who shout each other down over curriculum and books in the library. Or you can count on finding multiple articles every day that pit one generation against another. And so boomers, millennials, Gen Xers each complain about how bad the other ones are and each talk about how much real life the other generations don't really get. Or even easier to find, you can read how we use our ethnicity, our ethnic backgrounds, to dismiss people from a different one, to discount each other's experiences, to argue for how our own is better. We don't need anything from anyone else. Quarrels and fights make up a vast percentage of what you read. And by focusing on the tension between people in all these areas, you realize the news media is not simply reporting them. In some sense, it's normalizing them. It's teaching you to think that this is the way the world is, that it's just, it's just normal, it's fine, to live daily with an insane amount of relational tension and distress, and to live with that in every sphere of your life. 
messages that it's just normal. You probably, however, don't need to pick up your phone to learn all of this because it is literally everywhere all the time. And so you look at your own life and you think about the people that you live with. You think about the people that you work with. You think about the people that you drive down the road with and you realize that people daily get into quarrels and fights both with you and with others. There is not a single person in this room who cannot relate to James' question, who can't say, I don't, I don't know what we're talking about here. I don't experience people as quarrelsome. All of my relationships are just blissfully peaceful. They're tension-free. No one in this room can say that. And no human being who's ever been born can say that. On a daily basis, you and I live and live with and experience an appalling amount of conflict. And worst of all, we've participated in it. We've initiated it. Some of you have experienced that in your own homes this morning already. This issue of quarreling and fighting with everyone that we've ever known transcends time, space, culture, ethnicity, gender, age, in a very tragic sense, this is one of the things that unites our race, that shows that we are one race. It's one of the things that we all share in common with each other, something that we just take for granted as just part of the human experience. And yet, if you think about it, you realize this is not necessarily normal because we're made in God's image. This is not who God is. This is not how he lives his life. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, do not start fights with each other. They're not at war with each other. They don't have to put out fires that one of the other ones started. It's not who God is, and it's not the culture that he creates as he engages other persons. Whenever you look in Scripture and you get a glimpse into the throne room of God, you never get the sense that God is sitting there just surrounded by bickering and animosity. You don't get a sense that heaven just rings with one long, unending argument like earth does. It may be our normal experience on a fallen planet. It is not normal for every part in the universe. It will not be a part of our future lives when God remakes both heaven and earth. And so James comes along, and he doesn't take conflict for granted, doesn't accept that this is just the way it is. It can't be any different doesn't accept this as normative. Instead, he asks why. <laughs> why is it this way? What's the underlying root here? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That question sets the stage for today, and so we're going to look at four things as he helps us work through this. First, we'll see what the root cause is. Second, we'll think about the impact that that has on us and on the people around us. And let me warn you, those first two points are going to take up about 90% of the time. So when I hit point three, and we've already, I'm not going to keep on going, okay? Point three, we'll look at the solution that God provides. And then fourth, we'll consider our response. What is it that we need to do given what God provides? So four things today regarding the fights and quarrels that we all experience, the cause, the impact, the solution, and our response. First, James answers his own question in verse 1 by saying, is it, is the cause of our conflicts, is it not this, 
that your passions are at war within you. He's using the same model here as the rest of Scripture, the same concept of what a human being is, that what we do in, with our bodies comes from this deeper inner drive, this inner worship. And here he talks about that drive as passions. It's a word that can also be translated as desire or desire for pleasure. And it's a different Greek word than the one that we looked at for desire last week. It's different, but it's very similar in a lot of ways because it's a word that can easily have a negative meaning, like when you desire something that's bad. But the word for passions doesn't always imply that what you want is bad. Many times, actually, there can be passions or desire for something that is good, a good thing to desire, a desire for something in the world that God designed to be good. What turns the desire bad, the thing that makes them, the, the desire the cause of your conflicts, is that next phrase. It's that they are at war within you. If you want to think of it, that's the adjectival phrase. It describes these desires, and it's that phrase that helps you understand what is the cause of relational tension. So let's get the picture here. What does God mean when he says that they are at war within you? God is pointing out what you and I know, that there are multiple desires in you, in your heart, but you can't act simultaneously on all those desires. You can't give yourself fully to all of them in the same way at the same time. Instead, only one of them can direct you at any given moment. You can only act on one of them, respond to one of them, while in that moment, all of the other ones are subordinated to that ruling, dominating desire. But because your body's united to your spirit, you can only respond then to what has captured your spirit in any given moment. Now, your desires can change. They can replace each other. But only one will be in charge at any one time. And so the mental picture that you're being given here is of a conflict inside of these passions engaged in a war. They are trying to one-up each other to take over your heart. To take over your heart so that now you see the world through the filter of that particular desire and so that you respond to the world on the basis of what that desire wants. So in short, the, de the desires war within you for a purpose. They war with each other in order to win the war so that they are the one that then is ruling you, that has, that directs you according to what that desire wants. We're talking here about something that happens that's invisible to you, and that's hard then sometimes to wrap your mind around that. So let's make it a little more visible, a little bit more tangible. Let's ask this question. What does it feel like when a certain desire wins? How do you experience that? might be helpful here to think about the difference between a desire and a demand. There's nothing wrong with wanting something, with desiring something in the world that God has made. Nothing wrong with desiring a good job, close relationship, a child who respects you, some peace and quiet after a long day, a house you like, a dream vacation. Nothing wrong with wanting that thing as long as that desire stays in the realm of, gee, I would really, really like to have this. But it doesn't control your heart. What controls your heart is a greater desire to love the Lord who's made you and who's rescued you. 
As long as loving him is your primary desire, then all of these other desires are subordinated to that one. They are controlled by that higher desire. And when that's the case, it's fine to desire these other things. The problem comes in when that other desire goes to war with the desire to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When that other desire crosses the line from being something that you'd really, really like to have to being something that you absolutely must have. When it becomes something that you have to have if you think that life is going to be any good. When that happens, then that desire has won the war for control in your heart. And it replaces loving God as your primary desire. And you experience it then not as a good desire, but as an irresistible demand. See, when the desire that most controls you is to love the Lord and serve Him, then you can stand before Him with open hands. And you can say, this thing that I really want, that's really important to me, is something that I'd really like to have. Nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. You decide if it would be good for me to have it. It's an open-handed request. It's an open-handed desire. When this desire wins the war, it becomes a demand. It goes from open hands to closed fists. And then the internal dialogue sounds more like, I must have this. I will have this, and I'm setting myself on a course in order to get this. That's how a good desire morphs into a life-dominating demand once it wins the battle for control. And it's that transition that then sets the stage for conflict, especially when your demand and mine are at odds with each other. Because in that moment, I'm not interested in caring about you. I'm not interested in loving you. I'm interested in getting what I want. Now, James makes the self-centeredness of this demand even more clear when he says, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, he's talking here about prayer, about asking God for what you desire, but it's after the desire has won the war, and now is a demand, it's now in control, and he says that it turns you what? It turns you inward so that you can spend what you get on your own passions. It turns you inward so that you're not thinking about moving outward, not thinking about moving to give or moving to care about others, moving to honor the Lord above all the other desires. Instead, your focus is to satisfy the desire to have what you long for because you've become convinced that it will give you a better life having it than the one that you're currently living. Now, if you think about it, this is not how God lives. God makes things. He creates things for His glory, but He does it to what? To give, not to get. He creates other persons, other beings in order to give to them in order to care for them, in order to love them. And then he creates other things, this world, relationships, beauty, in order to have something to give to these persons that he loves. And God does not experience this as a burdensome thing. He is the happiest, most joyful person that there is. He's the most full-of-life person that you'll ever meet. He doesn't create to get. He creates to give. His desires move outward in joy away from himself toward others. That's why Jesus teaches that it's more blessed to give than to receive. 
It's more blessed because by doing so, you are aligning yourself with God and you're sharing in His lifestyle, in His way of doing things. You are approaching the world in the same way that He does. And that's what makes these warring passions so poisonous in you and me because they go the opposite direction. They drive us to get so we can spend what we get on our own selves. Drive us to get, not to give. They turn us inward on ourselves and they ruin us in doing so. And yet you and I know that that's not what it feels like in the moment, though. <laughs> when you really, really, really want something for yourself, when it's a demand and it feels like the best thing that you can do is what? It's to give in. To give in to that craving, that desire, to feed that desire, give it what it wants. But think it through for a moment. Because doing that creates a lifestyle that keeps putting you and your desires at the center of the world. It creates a mindset, a habit of thinking that says, I am here today in this moment with whoever else is here, with this person in this situation, primarily in order to get what I want from this moment. You ever met someone who has practiced this kind of lifestyle? Someone who has succeeded at putting themselves in the center of their life over and over and over. What are they like? Aren't they someone who, who tends to have an oversized, outsized sense of their own importance, of their own accomplishments, of their own influence or their own power? Aren't they someone who has an inflated sense of how interesting they are and of how much everyone else should be interested in them? Aren't they someone who promotes themselves, who reminds everyone of what they've done, where they've been, who they know? Someone who is constantly self-referential, even when it doesn't make any sense to bring themselves into the conversation, they just can't help it. Someone who is at the center of their own narrative. Someone for whom all roads lead back to themselves. When you ask wrongly, so that you can spend what you get on yourself, you are working overtime to turn yourself into this kind of person. And when you come in contact with other people, unless they go along with your agenda, there's going to be conflict. Quarrels and fights. Just has to be. So what is it that causes quarrels and fights? Here's the hard news. It's not other people. It's not how difficult your children are, how neglectful your spouse is, how clumsy your boss is. It's not other people. Certainly, they do have an impact on you. They can make it incredibly challenging to respond well. But just like we talked about last week, they don't force you to quarrel and fight. That comes from inside of each one of us, not from outside. Our next series through Lent is going to focus on suffering. It's going to focus on asking the question, okay, if I am fully responsible, if I buy into what God's saying, if I'm fully responsible for how I respond in life, how does the Scripture talk about all these things that happen to me that are really, really difficult to live with? How do I think about other people, suffering, sickness, all those kind of things? Those are great questions. And we're going to see that God thinks those things are really, really important, that He addresses them. But nothing that we learn in that series is going to change what God says here 
that the source of our battles with each other comes from inside of us. That the source does not come from other people in our lives, doesn't come from our culture and the way that it's trained us, does not come from our ethnic background that may make us more emotionally passionate than someone else, doesn't come from our genetic makeup, <laughs> doesn't come from not getting enough sleep last night, from feeling sick this morning. But the source of our problems with others comes from inside when a desire rises up that curves us back in on ourselves rather than moving us outward, rather than giving us a, a passion to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourself. That's point one, the cause of our fights. Point two, the impact. You notice here that the impact is twofold, that it affects our relationships, both with other people and with God himself. So first, with other people, verse two, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Notice here that our relational conflicts happen when? When we're thwarted when we do not have, when we cannot obtain. It's when someone else is present and we're not getting what we want. And the implication there is what? That in our minds, they're responsible. <laughs> that if it wasn't for them, we would have what we had set our hearts on. That somehow they're in the way of us getting what we want. They're thwarting us. And our response to being thwarted is to what? <laughs> to fight and quarrel to murder. Now, highly unlikely that James is writing to a group of Christians who are physically killing each other, especially when he just says murder and then moves on. Instead, what is he doing with that word? He's using it to get across the horror of what they're doing when they fight and quarrel. He's saying that verbal battles have a goal, and they have a purpose that is the same as if you were to end someone's life. So think with me. Th think with James. What's the goal of murder? It's to remove someone from your life. To remove them so that you never have to deal with them in this way again. It's so that you don't have to see them or be impacted by them. It's so that they can never get in the way of what you want again. God says here that that's the goal of our fights and quarrels. To use words, to use anger, to use emotions. When you're not getting what you want, to get rid of the obstacle to what you want. To get rid of this person, to move them out of the way so that they're no longer thwarting you. And so you're willing to say whatever you have to, at whatever volume, with whatever intensity, to accomplish your goal. It's one relational impact that a desire has when it wins the war for control of your heart. It moves people away from you. Second impact is that it moves you away from God. Last sentence of verse 2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. When you are locked onto a desire that is inward, not outward, when you want to have something in God's world in a way that is different from how He wants it, you don't even go to Him to ask for it because you know deep down inside <laughs> that what you want does not line up with what he wants for you. And so you don't go to him and pray, oh, sovereign God, my neighbor just got a new car. 
and now I desperately have to have a 2023 Tesla, Model X, the plaid upgrade, metallic blue with the turbine alloy wheels. You don't ask that. Why? When the desire becomes a demand, God is off the radar. You know that what you want is probably not what you should be asking for. That somehow it probably doesn't line up exactly with what he's thinking about for you. And as we've already seen, even if you do ask verse 3, you don't receive. Why? Because God's mean, doesn't want you to have good things? No. Because he refuses to go along with your agenda of becoming a small-souled, inward-directed person. And so he won't give you anything that would be bad for you. That's great news. That, that's what we call grace. And yet you realize there's still a problem, even though God is handling this really well. And the problem is that you have drifted away from him. Verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, hatred, that the Friendship with the world is hatred with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. By putting yourself at the center of your world, you've adopted the way that the larger world thinks and lives. By fighting others to get what you want, working to get them out of the way, you've adopted a lifestyle that's just like the rest of the world. You've become friends with the world. An important distinction here, this is a world that God loves. It's why he wants to save it from destroying itself. John 3.16 teaches us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that anyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world that he's made. But it's a world full of people who have turned their backs on him. So if you choose to be friends with the world, if you choose to adopt its goals and values, to put yourself and your desires at the center of the world, you're choosing to be an enemy of God. You're joining the rest of humanity in rejecting Him. And that's why God calls you adulterous. It's because you're unfaithful to Him. God has entered into a covenant with His people. It's one that is so strong that the Old Testament tries to give us an understanding of it by saying God marries his people. In the New Testament, we learn that the church is the bride of Christ. God has bound himself to you and me, to his people, in this close, intimate, exclusive relationship. So when we love something more than we love him, when we effectively say to him, I know what you want from me, and I know what you have to offer, but right now, I want this other thing more. It's more important to me. I'm just going to ignore what you say for the moment so I can get what I want. When we live that way, that's called adultery. Spiritual adultery. It's when you take the love and the loyalty that you owe to this God and you give it to something else. It's when He is no longer your highest desire is no longer your greatest love. Something else is. It's when what he says and values is no longer as important to you as it once was. Because why? Because this other thing now is. That's point two, the impact on others of our warring desires. 
They create external conflict, internal conflict, and we end up isolated, cut off from others. So point three, what's the solution? What is it that we need? <laughs> we need the amazing God who reveals himself in Scripture. Verse five, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What do you need when you've committed spiritual adultery? against the God who has loved you and given himself for you. You need him not to walk away. And make sure you get this, he doesn't. He remains faithful when you and I are not. We don't want him as much as we want something that he's made. We want his stuff, not him. And in response, what does he want? He wants us. He's jealous for us yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell within us. Now, that might sound strange to you if you've only ever heard of jealousy when it's used in a negative kind of way. But there's a history here with God being jealous of his people, for his people, over his people. It's a history that goes back to the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. In chapter 1, Zechariah hears a conversation between God and the angel of the Lord. And the context for that conversation is the exile of Israel. The context is God's anger with his people and having sent them away for 70 years. And we hear there that the angel of the Lord asks God, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? And Zechariah records that God responds with gracious and comforting words to the angel. He declares, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. There's within God the ability to be jealous for his people, to be jealous of their affection, to be jealous of their love, and it's an ability that is not tainted by all of the ugly ways that our normal human jealousy is. And if you think about it, God's kind of jealousy is something that all healthy relationships need. Think about the opposite. If a husband cheats on his wife and the wife just kind of shrugs and says to him, oh, that's okay. I'm not jealous for your love or your affection. I really don't need it or want it all that much, so it's okay to spread that around. I don't have a particularly strong drive to build a unique special relationship with you, so go ahead. Share yourself with other women. It's really okay. If you heard someone say that, you would say what? You'd say, that's not right. That's not love. That's indifference. When she says, I'm not jealous, what she really means is, I don't care. I don't have any feelings about you or our relationship, and so I don't care what you do or with whom you do it. In that sense, you realize that in a covenant relationship, when one person says to another that I promise to love and cherish you, to forsake all others, to keep myself only, for, only unto you for as long as we both shall live, that in that kind of relationship there has to be something like godly jealousy. Something that says, I do care. 
about my place in your heart. I care a lot. Not in some destructive way that says you can never be friends with anyone else, but in a way that says you matter to me. Your commitment matters to me. Our relationship matters to me. And there are some things about our relationship together that, no, I will not gladly share with anyone else. You are highest in my heart, right underneath the Lord. And I want to be, I should be in that same spot in your heart. That's what God is getting at by yearning jealously for his people when they've been unfaithful to him. He's saying, I care a lot. Our relationship with him matters to him. He doesn't just shrug when we're unfaithful. And that's exactly what I need. And it's what you need. We may have turned our back on God, but he does not turn his back on us. Now, in a human being, we would call that codependent. We would say that's a neediness. But in God, it's glorious. Why? Because he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to love him. He's already full of love. And so he doesn't stay faithful to us to get our scraps, to get some love from us. He stays faithful to us because he knows how much we need his love. So even though we've tried to cut him out of our lives, distance ourselves from his love, he doesn't let us continue. He yearns jealously for us. And he gives more grace. Let that sink in for a moment. That's not a little thing. You and I are engaged in spiritual adultery. We are committing unfaithfulness at the highest possible level. We have rejected the most powerful lover that there is in or outside the universe. Someone who can literally do anything that he wants to with us. And on top of that, by being friends with the world, we've made ourselves his enemies. There is absolutely no more dangerous place to be. And his response is to give more grace. More grace than you would expect a jilted lover to give. Grace that is even more than the problem that you've created with him. Grace that lets you return to him. Grace that lets you rebuild a broken relationship so that you can experience his love again. So how do we do that? Point four, how do we respond? James gives you here much more than just a way of analyzing yourself. He also gives you a way to escape living a life of adultery and conflict. Verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's an amazing passage. It's unexpected. You have fought with others, and now, to resolve your conflicts with people, don't go to people first. Instead, turn first to God. Submit to Him. Draw near to Him. And as you do so, turn away from sin. Resist the devil. Cleanse your hands. Purify your heart. 
In other words, it's only in confessing and rejecting our idolatry, these warring desires that want to control us. It's only in confession, turning away from valuing the things in this world more than we value God, that we now learn to live in peace. Peace with God and then peace with each other. Notice here the attitude that you have to have. It's a call that you would be wretched, to grieve, to mourn, to weep. What is that? That's language that you find in the Old Testament prophets. It's the language of repentance, of turning away from your own sin. And that means too often I have to confess that I have the wrong focus. Because when I'm in conflict, I tend to be most upset about what? <laughs> about people who I think are just hard to get along with. I'm upset with people who want more from me than I want to give. I'm upset with people who don't want to give me what I want from them. But God calls me here not to grieve over others, not to be upset over people, but to be upset over my own spiritual unfaithfulness, my own adultery. Because the only way to deal with relational problems that I generate is first to get myself right with God. The work you have to do doesn't end with God. There's still things that you probably have to do to get right with other people. That's what James talks about here, actions about washing your hands. There are conversations you're going to need to have. There are probably apologies that you'll have to offer. There are steps, things to do to try to care well for someone when you haven't. You don't resolve fights and quarrels fully just by going to God. But if you're going to be successful in resolving those fights and quarrels with people, you have to start by turning to God. Because there is no other way to deal with the demands inside of you once they're out of control. And there's an incredible promise here. That if you will take this path, if you will humble yourself, if you're not forced into it by circumstances... But if you voluntarily will admit that the cause of your conflicts is inside of you, God says he'll raise you up. He'll exalt you. That's the promise he makes in verse 6. That he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Which could almost stumble me there, because that seems like that's kind of the problem, right? See, if we were humble, <laughs> we wouldn't be at war with people in the first place. Instead, we would delight to give to others out of the abundance that God gives to us. But we are at war with people precisely because we don't delight to give to them. We want something from them. And because we feel in that moment that it's okay to assert our rights to what we want. By any definition, that's not being humble. That's proud. That means anyone who's ever started a conflict, who has ever quarreled and fought, is proud, who is unwilling to humble themselves, which is what? That's all of us. So how then can we hope to have this grace that God offers? It's because God doesn't just yearn for us, hoping that we'll do something right. He gives us more grace. He gives us the grace to yearn for Him. How? By putting in us the same desire that is in his son. Jesus is the humble one who didn't need to be humble. Jesus was and is equal with God. 
But as Philippians 2, 6 puts it, he didn't think equality was a thing that he needed to hold on to. Being equal with God was not the greatest desire in his heart. What Jesus wanted more than anything else was to obey the Father above all other things. That was his primary desire. And he hung on to that even when it meant letting go of everything else, including his life. And so as Philippians 2.8 says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He submitted himself to God in everything. He was only ever faithful to God, never adulterous. And yet, in response, on the cross, the Father rejected him. Jesus resisted the devil his entire life, and at the end of it, when the devil did his worst, it wasn't the devil who fled from him. It's the Father who forsook him as he hung on the cross. Just a few hours earlier, Jesus drew near to God, prayed to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Father, hours later, did not draw near to him. Why? Because he was faithful to the Father, which meant he was faithful to us. He stayed married to us, covenanted himself with us, so that what is ours became his. And so that what's his now becomes ours. He received what we deserve, the rejection of God. We now receive the kind of heart that he has, the kind that is willing to become humble. Jesus humbled himself for your sake and mine. He put you and your needs before his own desires so that we can now humble ourselves before God, so that we can now admit we don't have it in us to reform ourselves. Rely on this one who did not need to reform himself. Rely on this one who is lifted up on the cross. Rely on him and the Lord will also lift you up. He will give you the grace to repent. He will give you the power to resist the devil. He'll give you the ability to reconcile with people that you've fought with. And best of all, he himself will draw near. Lord, you are the only thing that we really need. Lord, you are the one thing that we could never want except that you've come and changed our hearts. You've given us a longing and a hunger for you. Lord, increase that. We confess as your people that we've been unfaithful, that we have wanted and longed for other things. And the record in Scripture is that that does not change your heart for us. And so we don't come to you this morning on the strength of what we have done. We come to you on the strength of what you have said to us. That because of what you have done, you will not turn your back on us. Lord, let us have enough faith, enough grace to believe that. And to draw near to you this morning. To praise you, to worship you. In Jesus' name.